This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. In 2018, three and a third million students were attending charter schools in the United States, but it seemed that the charter sector was coming to a peak. The number of new schools opening up had slipped precipitously. Democrats were turning against school choice, especially in the charter sector, and philanthropists were turning to other strategies for reforming America's schools. But then the pandemic struck and suddenly parents everywhere, cities, suburbs, and countrysides alike were desperately searching for something that would work for their family. So is this new environment going to disappear with the end of the pandemic or have we entered a new era? To discuss the future of charters, I have with me today on the Education Exchange, Nina Reese, President of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. So thank you, Nina, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, let me first of all ask you about the recent report issued by the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, which you uh, uh, direct. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, because it's quite a significant report, you have collected data from all the states across the country, the official state department, uh, state education department, which, uh, uh, and then compiled all the data. And you're saying that charter school enrollments increased more uh, by a larger number than ever before in recent years. So can you elaborate on your findings? Yes. So again, thank you so much for having me, Paul. This paper, which was just released a month or so ago, um, looks at data from the last school year, the 2020-21 school year. And we found that uh, enrollment in charter schools increased by 240,000. This doesn't include data from states like Tennessee. So if you add Tennessee, those numbers are probably even higher. Um, But at the same time, 1.3 million students left the traditional system. Uh, So they either came to charter schools or went to uh, a private school or a homeschool setting. Um, And so for us, though, the 240,000 jump is a pretty significant one. Uh, We've always had great demand for charter schools, but something happened uh, in, in the you know, year that COVID hit, which prompted a lot of families to opt for charter schools. And we saw an increase in literally every state that had a charter school law, except for states like Illinois, um, which are really concentrated on, you know, in particular cities. Uh, so the assertion that people make that all the increase ended up in online schools is actually not supported by our paper because not every uh, state allows for uh, full-time online charter schools. Uh, so we're excited yeah, about this. I think the families coming to, to, to charter schools, these are families who are coming to our space for the first time. And um, uh, whether they stay with us or not, we'll know more uh, once we get the data from this year. But we uh, think that something about our space was attractive enough to attract these families to our sector. And hopefully most of them will stay. But I thought the biggest problem with growth in the charter sector was a lack of space, that charter schools were filled up, that you had to have, um, you know, had to win a lottery to get into a charter school in many parts of the country. Uh, this, you know, how could you have such rapid growth unless you were increasing supply? Or is there some 
So, now, the obvious increase in supply is through the virtual mechanism because there's sort of no space limitation there. So if it's not in the virtual sector, then how, where, where is it? Well, I mean, the assertion that uh, we don't have enough space is actually not backed up in every state. I think some states like New York, for instance, are hitting caps to open new charter schools. So Massachusetts, which is where you live, uh, New York, these are states that have actual caps that prohibit charters from expanding. In most other places, caps are not an issue. Um, and charters are in more than inner city settings. So in those places where they had space, they attracted more students. And um, I will also say that this does open the discussion around expanding the reach of charter schools beyond certain jurisdictions, which is certainly what the governor of Ohio did this past year. Uh, it used to be you could only open charter schools in Cleveland and Columbus in certain settings. Now he's allowing for them to grow in more places. So it is also interesting to see what governors and legislators did last year and what they will do next year to expand the reach of charter schools. So you actually also have more of them in communities for people to be able to access. While the number, the total number of charter schools seems to have plateaued over time, the demand and the enrollment numbers has continued to rise. So it's not, you know, as perfect as it should be, but most of these schools are still, they still have some space. And certainly during COVID, they were able to expand to meet the needs of the families who were coming to them. Well, one of the uh, issues that constantly comes up is the uh, decisions by uh, the state legislatures or whoever is in responsible uh, to, to limit the number of charter schools and the number of enrollments. And uh, now we've seen in the latest round of elections in Virginia and New Jersey, uh, a, a lot of concern about the uh, education that students are being provided or were being provided during the pandemic and the various issues that have come up. Uh, and so uh, we have a Republican candidate in Virginia who openly campaigned on expanding charter schools and other school choice programs. So do you see this as a straw in the wind that, there, that the political climate is changing for charters? Well, I certainly hope so. And again, it started when the pandemic first hit and a lot of families who normally may not have wanted to leave their public schools noticing uh, the problems that these traditional systems face. I live right here in Fairfax County. This is one of the best, well, most well-resourced um, districts in the country. And they uh, weren't able to hire a good provider to go online uh, and when they did, the whole system crashed immediately. So uh, parents for the first time in these suburban communities noticed um, how hard it was for decentralized bureaucracies to respond to a pandemic. In places like Portland, Oregon, they were waiting for federal guidance on how to make sure that special ed kids were being served if the medium was online. As a result, they were prohibiting even online charter schools from serving students because they were waiting for federal guidance. So 
people started to see these things in real time. And they also started to notice what was happening in their own living room by watching the interactions between teachers and their and their students. So, uh, so right now, the, I think the opportunity, Paul, really is around these new families who have discovered the importance of education and the uh, inability of a centralized system to respond. There's still a lot of love and respect for the teachers in this medium, uh, but the way certainly a lot of union leaders responded uh, has left a bad taste in people's mouths. And I think that's one of the things to look out for. In terms of support for choice and education in Virginia, education was the second ranked issue uh, in terms of the, the things that people were looking for when they went to the ballot box. And when you look at the split between Republicans and Democrats on that issue right now, it's narrowed quite a bit from like 26 to like three points. Whether this will stay in place remains to be seen. A lot depends on the way people talk. Republicans talk about this issue. Education tends to normally be a Democrat issue. But our hope is that because so many people are trying to pay attention to education and choice is at the center of it, that charter schools could come out as the real winners because it is a choice that's offered within the public system with rules and regulations and um, something that currently 3.5 million students are already benefiting from in a sector that's been around for 30 years. Well, this is all fascinating. Um... Do you feel that there's still competition between charter schools and the private sector? The private sector has been losing enrollment uh, for quite some time. It may have rebounded now, we don't know, may not have. Um, it's, um, and certainly there is a feeling out there that uh, a lot of students who might've gone to private school are choosing charter schools. Instead, after all, they don't cost money in the private schools do, do you feel a tension between the people in the, that support the private school sector, the school voucher uh, enthusiasts and the tax credit enthusiasts, you know, don't have the same level of enthusiasm for charter schools that they might have had in the past? Um, you know, Paul, as you know, I kind of come from that sector. I think some of these tensions definitely exist in those inner city settings where the Catholic school system um, is no longer as strong as it used to be right here in D.C. Uh, a group of uh, Catholic schools decided to become charter schools uh, with all the rules and regulations that come with running a traditional or, or, or a public school system since you cannot teach religion in a charter school. Uh, so I do think in certain pockets of the country, this tension may have existed. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, when you think about how many students are in charter schools, how many are in private schools and where the demand is, public and you know, the public sector is still much larger. So rather than fighting with each other, I think the aim ought to be around finding solutions so that more families have access to options rather than focusing on making sure that there is enough options within an inner city setting that's already saturated like in Washington, DC. So um, I'm not as steeped into the tensions, but I do think that from an advocacy standpoint, our focus ought to be on the needs of families and students. And of course, if the options in a charter setting free, more parents are going to want to pick that option versus one that requires you to pay out of pocket. You know, the Obama administration always supported charter schools at, at, through the race to the top. Uh, 
innovation uh, through uh, the waiver policies for NCLB waivers and through other actions that it took. Um, and, and of course, the Trump administration had uh, a strong support for school choice, including charter schools. How is the Biden administration positioning itself? It was ambiguous during the course of the campaign, though. Uh, probably not as friendly towards charters as uh, as Obama had been. Do you see any um, any signs as to what direction the Biden administration is taking? That's a great question, Paul. So we've been um, monitoring the administration's actions around education. Of course, right now they're very busy with the pandemic, which is as it should be. Higher education certainly has been a focus of theirs and also getting their nominees through the processes. So it's only been, they've only been around for a year and I do think they need a little bit of grace before people draw too many conclusions about their positioning on issues of innovation and charter schools being one of them. Uh, on the campaign trail, they didn't say much about charter schools. One of his advisors did uh, offer a couple comments which were disturbing in terms of, uh, you know, um, getting rid of private charter schools. And as everyone on this call knows, there is no such thing as a private charter school. Um, so, and when you look at the, 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 vice, the president's record as vice president and as a senator, uh, he did not engage in the education wars and his voting record very much aligned with that of most um, moderate Democrats when it came to reform, including charter schools. Um, so we um, have no reason to think that he has changed his mind. I think the key factor really is the fact that the two big teachers unions uh, played a role in getting him elected. This is the first time that's been the case since President Carter created the US Department of Education. And so with that kind of access and given the union's opposition to charter schools, there is renewed angst, I guess, around uh, what a federal role and what the administration can do to impact charter schools. And as I said, because they're so focused on the pandemic and other issues, they haven't necessarily done a lot. But with that said, they've also not said anything positive or talked about charter schools that much. We invited the Secretary of Education to our conference this year. He came. Uh, he's also uh, met with our board of directors. Um, he you know, used to be an authorizer uh, in Connecticut and knows a thing or two about charter schools, but again, a lot remains to be seen. Well, how about the COVID relief bills that uh, were passed initially? Was there anything in those bills that took into account the challenges that the charter schools faced during the uh, height of the uh, pandemic? And, um, and there's some new legislation that's going through Congress, which is we don't know quite what's what's in it, but uh, is there any sign from what's happening there as to how much support charter schools have in, in Washington? Well, charter schools as public schools qualify for COVID relief funds. When the first package was passed in March of 2020, 13 and a half billion was disseminated to public and charter schools uh, in uh, December of 2020. Um, there was 50 billion available for public and charter schools. And then this past year, 121 billion was disseminated. And that money um, is supposed to go to states and LEAs and, and be available through 2024. Again, because charters are public schools, they qualify for those funds. 
And oh, you mentioned about the current uh, reconciliation package. So in the bipartisan infrastructure frame, there was no funding really for K-12, uh, but there was funding for um, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots and internet connectivity. Uh, so they did put quite a bit of money to close the digital divide, which does unfortunately inflict a lot of the communities where our, our students live. Uh, there's also some money for clean energy and making sure school, school, school buses are running on clean energy. So that, that's the only thing that that infrastructure bill uh, did in order to impact public and charter schools. In the reconciliation package, there is a lot of funding uh, for universal pre-K or access to pre-K. And so uh, we've been studying that carefully to see exactly how it would impact charter schools. I think in those states where charters currently are operating pre-K programs, like in Washington, DC, Certainly there's gonna be more money to be had, uh, but the dollar amounts in that package uh, for pre-K and early care and education is quite steep. And again, by default, because we're public schools, we will access it, but there is no specific line item for charter schools, if that's what you're asking. So that's uh, great. Now you mentioned earlier that um, charter schools were more nimble or more able to adapt uh, as uh, schools were asked to make vast changes in a very short period of time. But is there really any evidence of that? Do, you, do, you, do we really know that, that charter schools did a better job of adapting to the challenges of the pandemic than, than the district schools? Oh, absolutely. Um, every study that was done right when the pandemic hit demonstrates that they responded faster. So I think SERPI did a paper looking at the charter school growth fund portfolio schools. We did a paper looking at single sites and smaller CMOs that are not part of the growth fund portfolio with public impact. Uh, I think Fordham did a paper also looking more at single sites. What was apparent in all of these papers is that our leaders were just you know, more in tune with what their families needed. And because they had the authority to move dollars around uh, and because they have to raise money for their, you know, in order to make sure that they keep their doors open, they access philanthropy faster to offer Wi-Fi hotspots or to make uh, Chromebooks and whatnot available to their kids or to do, in, you know, people think of remote learning as something that has to happen virtually with a computer, but you can also do it in other ways. You can you know, do it through homework packs, calling fam families to make sure kids are doing their work. So the response in that spring period of time in 2020, spring of 2020 was extremely positive. Uh, now the record on how many of them opened uh, is a little bit mixed. And when you talk to them, I do think they were again, surveying their schools to see what families were comfortable with. And depending again on the region that you were in, in some instances, it wasn't so much the teachers who were leery of going back, but it was the families not feeling safe sending their children back. And there was certainly some evidence that shows that a lot of communities, especially uh, black families and Hispanic families are not quite as comfortable sending their kids back to school when there are so many uncertainties. And of course, the availability of vaccines is also a question mark in some of these places. So, but with that said, we have examples of schools that decided to open to anyone who wanted to come. In other instances, they remained closed and offered virtual learning, but they had partnership with after-school programs that were offering custodial care for students to come to a setting while parents went back to, um, to work. But that 
story is a little bit different from what happened in March of 2020. And then again, this year, when you look at what's been going on, we've been um, looking at how charters are using the latest round of COVID funding. And we're going to study that more carefully to see what innovative things that they are doing in order to answer your question. Uh, but because we're more data-driven, because we have fiscal and legal autonomy to move dollars around, and because a lot of our leaders came to this space to innovate, they are certainly more agile and uh, quick to adapt to change. Uh, but a lot of it in terms of what happens next remains to be seen. And I know there's a lot of fatigue within the system. Educators, you know, have been through a lot. So um, I still think that, um, you know, if I were a betting man, I would put my money on charter schools because they're just uh, traditionally more nimble and entrepreneurial. How about the education savings account idea, which is something that people are saying is particularly adapted to this moment in time, as people are searching for the right combination of government's support for what they want to do. Maybe they want to have their child at home more, but they want them in a pod, or maybe they want to bring in a tutor, or maybe they want a lot of uh, specific support for certain kinds of things. Um, but the charter school model has always been, you go to school, the government supports that school, you have a choice of that school, but you go to a school. So what do you think of these education savings account, uh, accounts? Is this the, the wave of the future or is this just going to be uh, some, um, you know, a boutique idea for a small group of people? Well, I mean, you have to pass it. So not every state has education savings accounts uh, or opportunities for individuals to put money in these scholarship granting organizations that then make funds available to families. Conceptually, though, I do think it's attractive to empower people, uh, families with greater purchasing power. Uh, and that pur purchasing power may not always just be about moving a child from one school to another but through enhancing the child's learning through online mediums, purchasing coursework from best-in-class instructors. Uh, and right now, there's a lot of it also available online after COVID hit, as you know, S Success Academy, KIPP, Uncommon, Achievement First. They put all of their uh, course content online and their teacher um, workbooks and whatnot so that others could benefit from it. You uh, have brought Diane Tavner to this group. She's beta tested and done a lot of these things where uh, she's making the course content available to anyone who wants to access it. So I think it's attractive to give parents more options, get them used to owning their child's education far more than before. So it used to be seen that ed savings accounts were just about moving kids into private schools, but I think the real opportunity is in these other things that families can do to enhance their child's learning. I have a 16 year old as an example. Uh, she's studying for the SATs. And even though she goes to a, an independent um, public school, every family in that school has a private tutor that's preparing them for the SATs. And these private tutors are very expensive. Um, and yet, of course I can afford to do it, but the fact that we pay out of pocket for some of these things um, certainly doesn't make sense. And if you're low income or even a working class middle income family, I think these costs definitely add up and it doesn't have to be that way. You should be able to make decisions faster and also 
enhance your child's education as a lot of upper income families did during COVID. But in order to do that, you need resources. Well, is this uh, the new, the growth in the charter school, is there any evidence it's being concentrated in the suburban areas? This, the talk is out there is that, you know, suburban parents have become disturbed with what's going on in the school system. They're looking for options. They're trying out things. Do you see any sign that the growth that's recently happened is in suburbia or aren't you able to detect that? Well, we've noticed interest in expanding into suburbs and rural areas for quite some time, uh, but most um, of the energy has been focused on cities because the sense of urgency certainly is higher. I also think that the unions tend to be more focused on inner cities and the case for you know, uh, allowing for new schools to be created in those settings where you have chronically failing schools has been made and it's been it's been a stronger case. Whereas if you move further out, because families have selected public schools by moving into these, you know, fancier neighborhoods, there is a perception that you've already made a choice. And so why would you go there and make other options available? And I think that's what I was saying earlier. I think the pandemic has woken people up uh, to the fact that perhaps you know, just having, you know, one option uh, in a public setting, no matter how well resourced is not enough. And so that, that's really the opportunity to leverage. You know, I also, as you know, I, I used to work on No Child Left Behind a long time ago. And one of the things that I actually personally liked about the law was the fact that it made so much information available to families. It disaggregated the information so that you could see if you're, high-performing public school was perhaps not doing as well with a certain subgroup. And of course, as you know, a lot of suburban families did not like that disaggregation of data and the labeling of their school as a school that was in need of improvement or that was missing AYP. But I do think, you know, this that is the kind of information that needs to be available to everyone so that they can themselves be more engaged in their child's education and understand whether they're, you know, these taxpayer dollars that are going to these schools are in fact uh, yielding a high return or whether you need to spend that much for things that you're spending in suburban settings. So there's definitely uh, a wake up call in suburbia. And I think a lot of it actually had to do with the fact that schools were closed for so long uh, and it took them so long to reopen even after teachers were vaccinated. A lot of people have said that charter schools take away money from the public schools. And this was a, a, a major issue here in Massachusetts in the last, back in 2018, when there was uh, an effort to expand the number of charter schools through a uh, voter referendum because charter schools thought they had the support of the public at large. But when the vote was taken, that uh, proposed amendment uh, fell. Uh, so, um, and the major argument that was used in the campaign was that charter schools take away money from the public schools. And so how do you, how do you answer that concern? Well, Paul, um, that's been the argument made against charter schools and choice since these concepts were first introduced. And our view is that this is not the system's money, it's the child's money, and it should follow the child. 
to the system and the school that they're attending. And so if there is more demand and interest in public charter schools, then those schools should get those funds. Um, in terms of uh, the arguments made, look, if you are running a central school system and you see a lot of students leaving, like we saw here in DC, you make some adjustments so that those families return to your schools and stay there. So again, you have um, the superintendent of Miami-Dade, Alberto Carballo, uh, who's spoken to this group and to your students in the past. What he has done in Miami is a great example of responding uh, to the dynamics of a choice-based system and treating the you know, broad panoply of schools and his system as part of the community rather than as competitors. Now, again, in reality, he probably has a system in place that also protects his district. But I think the idea is for the superintendents to seize this opportunity and uh, do certain things in their system so that families stay in, in their schools rather than to um, treat it as, okay, this money is leaving, the child is leaving, and I'm left with nothing. And now, in, in the case of Miami-Dade, he certainly has been around for a long time. And uh, most leaders in these um, centralized systems, especially in inner cities, don't stay in those jobs long enough to know how to adjust to these changes. Uh, and that's quite frankly, the reason why we believe charters are a better model because the leadership of these charter management organizations and charters themselves has not changed as rapidly as the leadership of um, in, you know, center, uh, center city schools uh, around the country. So th that dynamic makes it hard um, to have stability. And um, so again, at the end of the day for us, it's about serving the needs of families and diminishing the tension between public and charter schools as much as possible. I also think though that our sector needs to do a better job of explaining what it does, how it's helping the community and forging alliances where it makes sense. Um, but also understanding that at the end of the day, their customers are the students. So uh, I think we need to center everything back to that rather than on all the other things that the traditional system is currently caught up trying to explain. Well, you mentioned leadership, and one of the main criticisms of charter schools in recent times has been the, uh, the fact that the students are predominantly African-American and Hispanic-American, but the staff, the teachers, and even more so the, uh, the, uh, the heads, the people who are directing charter schools, are uh, from the, um, the majority population. What can be done to sort of um, provide leadership for charter schools that emerges out of the minority community itself so that the minority community finds and identif can identify more clearly with the schools that their children are attending? Um, so actually, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, the diversity of the teacher workforce in charter schools is greater than that of the traditional system. So in the aggregate right now, we have more teachers of color in our schools than we see in traditional systems. 
Uh, I don't know if that number holds for when you say leadership, you're probably talking about the leadership of these charter management organizations. That's been a topic of discussion within the chartering space for quite some time. And as you know, in recent years, certainly in the past year, we've seen a lot of turnover in the in the leadership of these schools. You know, Noble is an example, Idea Charter Schools. Um, so when you go down the list, um, a lot of these leaders are making room for uh, people of color to take them. And what's good about this is so, so I mean, again, because, because we're data-driven and because some of these CMOs have created pipelines uh, for their talented team to move up the ranks, it is actually easier for them to groom and bring someone uh, to lead the work. Uh, but in terms of raw data, I don't know what the latest is. All I know is that there's just been a lot of change in the in the sector. And as far as I'm concerned, it's more important for the teachers to the extent you believe that the teacher of color is going to connect better with the students that they're serving. To me, that point of entry is more important as a first order of business. And that's where we actually do quite well. And I know that this administration is very focused on that. Uh, but with all that said, I do think we need to also be able to attract um, more teachers to the workforce. And, you know, in, you know, in our economy right now, I think there are just so many jobs and options for people who graduate from college uh, and, you know, whether they want to become a teacher or stay in the teacher workforce for an extended period of time as, you know, um, past generations did remains to be seen. I just think there is a lot of things about the labor market and the teaching space, certainly, that uh, is changing. And we just need to, in my opinion, make sure that whatever teacher training program we're making available is something that really helps those teachers hit the ground running and that we're testing and learning and, and refreshing it constantly the way that certainly Eva Moskowitz has done with Success Academies, where she's not leaving a lot to chance, but really using her training to make sure any teacher who's exposed to a student knows what they're doing. Nina, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with Nina Reese, the president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast every Monday at noon Eastern time.